everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the United States and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. During most of my time, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show that usually is about New York City's neighborhoods and their extraordinary history. On most programs, like today, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but also its current energy, its texture and its vibe. What makes that New York neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, artists, and other neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host a show about an interesting part, a theme of the city that is not focused on one particular neighborhood. Past shows have included the history of U.S. presidents who came or who lived in New York. We talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn in the late 19th century. Uh, we covered the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York, and we've also explored the history of bicycles and cycling with the curator from the Museum of the City of New York. In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway. We're the age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre. I am going to do a show on punk sometime in the East Village or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This is the second one of our three special shows in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. While this is also a regular show about a New York neighborhood, Soho, our second guest, Charles Leslie, was a founder of the country's preeminent museum of LGBTQ visual art, the Leslie Lohman Museum. And Charles will also tell us about the start of his collection and the beginnings of the museum, which is, in fact, in Soho. But first, we are going to go to our first guest, who's no stranger to rediscovering New York. She's now a regular on the show, and that's Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years has been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews. She hosts private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. Uh, her site is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce has published two guidebooks, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and the second book, From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2007 Review. And we heartily welcome back to Rediscovering New York, Joyce Gold. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Some of our listeners know a lot about your personal history, but as I know our listenership is growing, I'm sure we have listeners who don't. You're not originally from New York, are you? I'm from a little town in Pennsylvania. Hazleton, PA is where I was born. And uh, <clears throat> it was a great place to grow up. But uh, New York is all about choices, and I love the choices that I either can choose or not choose in the big city. And of course, home is where the heart is, and all of us in this studio today, our homes are in New York. Uh, how did you get into the business of illuminating and entertaining New Yorkers about our neighborhoods and about, and about their particular history? Well, I was a computer analyst for many years, and uh, I was working at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York downtown, and one day I just went into a wonderful old bookstore, Mendoza's bookstore, long gone, 
and I picked up a 100-year-old guidebook about New York 100 years before that. It changed my daily commute. It talked about the streets that I walked through every day coming from the subway, and suddenly everything started getting more interesting. And I felt bad that so many New Yorkers passed streets every day. They didn't know how they came about. They didn't know what a lot of details meant. And so I made it my passion to help them appreciate and really even greater, more greatly enjoy their city. Soho is perhaps one of the best heard of neighborhoods, at least, uh, in media. Um, A lot of people know how it get its name, but for some of our listeners outside New York, how did the neighborhood get the name Soho? Well, the year was 1962 when they started using it. Chester Rapking was a, a city planner, and so he started using that term. And it's, I believe, what you call a portmanteau word, uh, standing for south of Houston Street. Like so many other New York neighborhoods. Some of them were uh, the invention of the real estate industry. Oh, yes. But uh, was, was Soho? Was the person who came up with Soho? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I think it was just a short way to talk about a district that a lot of people weren't noticing enough for, for him. Did the neighborhood have a name before Soho? Well, for a while uh, earlier than that, it was called Hell's Hundred Acres. There were a lot of fires there. Oh, wow. Well, let's go back uh, a number of centuries. Um, The settlement of what would become Soho actually was started during the Dutch period, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, Two years after the Dutch settled Manhattan and nearby parts in 1624, African Americans were brought to the city and uh, they were brought to be slaves or indentured servants. 18 years later, some of them were given at least half freedom, meaning they were free, their children not necessarily, and they were given large tracts of land in the outlying district. And one couple owned from uh, Houston to Prince on today's map, from Broadway to, I believe, Green or Sullivan Street. So the original owners of Soho was the first freed black enclave, I believe, in the Western Hemisphere. Well, and when did that start? When did it? Well, that would have been 1644, 45, yes. Uh, they were given land that is now Washington Square Park, Union Square Park, and along the stream that used to be in the West Village. Mm-hmm. Well, the, there were originally a lot of streams and hills in what was known as Soho now. Like a lot of Manhattan, uh, I believe that Manhattan is a Lenape word for the island of the hills. That's, That's right, yes. Um, uh, how did Soho become flat and huh. <laughs> start getting broken up into, into streets? Well, much of the city started getting flat in 1811 when the city commissioners come out with a geometric grid plan for streets north of Houston. But uh, there were four dozen lakes when the Dutch arrived, and one of them, the biggest of them all, called the Collect, among other things, was getting very polluted. So a lot of those uh, hills were leveled by putting them into the Collect Pond as landfill, and uh, that's, that's when a lot of that gets leveled. Who was Nicholas Bayard, and what was the significance of what uh, what he did in Soho to, in the early days? To- well, he owned a ton of real estate. He was the uh, nephew, I believe, of Peter Stuyvesant, our uh, governor for eight, the last 18 of the 40 Dutch years, and, um, and he had all of that property. Uh, he loses his fortune at a certain point, I believe in the America, uh, I, be- I forget exactly when, and his property or his heir's property is diced up 
think around the time of the American Revolution. Yeah, I think the revolution wasn't so great to his business and uh, finances, no, and he was left exactly. uh, holding a big bag and <laughs> selling off uh, lots of, uh, or subdividing his property into That's lots right. and selling them off was a way for him to, to get out of that. Yeah. Um, so when did what we would recognize as urban development in what would become Soho start? When did, people, when, when did it start getting built up? Uh, there's not much Soho hasn't been. In, say, 1800, it was rural because almost everybody in the city lived to the south. By the 1820s, it was the most populated residential neighborhood of the city. People were beginning to try to move away from some of the noise and clutter in the lower city, and so they would be moving up to Soho at that point. Um, but then industry came by the time of the Civil War, basically from the 1850s through the 1870s, it was what we would call the Fifth Avenue shopping street, especially Broadway between Houston and Canal Street. Uh, by the 1880s, after those stores start moving up, because timing was always everything in this city, as well as other places, it became industry. And then beginning in the early 60s, it became uh, known for its artists. Hmm. Well, let's go back a little bit. Um, before it became uh, developed as a, as a shopping district, first it, uh, there were residences there. James Fenimore Cooper, I think, lived in. Yes, that's right. President Madison, after he left the presidency, uh, he moved. He lived his last six years in the home of his daughter in, um, in, in Soho, as it's now called. Was that Madison or James Monroe? I think Madison retired to uh, Montpelier yes, in Virginia. I believe okay. you're right, okay. yes. This uh, was Monroe's Montpelier. Right, <laughs> and that's and he actually was, James Monroe was buried in the New York City Marble Cemetery when he died. And then they wanted him in Virginia. Yeah, and they so got they him. <laughs> Before the Civil War, they took his corpse back. There can be a whole tour on bodies who have been moved out of New York cemeteries. Very interesting. But in those days, if someone died, you just couldn't transport them over weeks to, well, they did with Lincoln, but uh, I suppose they did a pretty good embalming job with him. <laughs> Um, uh, a lot of the famous retail names that we know today got their start on Lower Broadway and Soho. Lord and & Taylor and Tiffany and & Company. Yes. Well, I'm not sure they got their start. Uh, Tiffany, for example, starts in 1837 further south near City Hall. But at the time of the Civil War, it moved up to that stretch of Soho. Um, Arnold Constable and Lord and & Taylor always seemed to move within two blocks of each other. And it must have been quite a shock for Lord and Taylor when Arnold Constable eventually goes out of business. But they were near each other at that time. And uh, it was very fashionable. I think the, the likes of Mary Todd Lincoln, before she, uh, Lincoln became president, did a lot of shopping there. In fact, Mary Todd Lincoln mm. racked up a lot of debts. <laughs> well, but, it was really when he became president and she arrived in the city with an entourage and everybody gave her lots of credit. And the store, I mean, A.T. Stewart at 10th Street, she owed $23,000 to by the time her husband was assassinated. But in Soho, there was a wonderful glassware store uh, at the corner of Broome and Broadway. It was called Howitt. Um, and it's a very interesting building for a number of reasons. But she got superb sort of like Steuben glass type items, particularly for the White House. We're going to go back to Howitt in a couple of minutes when mm -hmm. we talk about uh, the cast iron architecture in the neighborhood. Uh, the neighborhood also became a theater district before the Civil War. Uh, there were different theaters. What was the American, what was the African Grove Theater? Well, they say the African Grove Theater, which was at Mercer Street, was um, just above Houston, was uh, the first black 
run and uh, owned theater in the United States. Uh, and in the more underbelly of Soho, there was a little bit of a red light district, wasn't there? <laughs> yes, there was. You see, Broadway had a lot of hotels, and Green Street had a lot of places that men could go when they weren't in the hotels, basically. Hmm. A lot of red light uh, aspect. And all this activity, um, including the red light activity, started to drive out the middle class. And uh, that's what made way for, for cheaper rents and manufacturing to move in, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, was there something of a building boom in Soho during and after the Civil War? Well, there was always a technology. 19th century was a technological place, um, uh, industrial place. It all begins in 1807 when Robert Fulton uses a steam engine off of the Christopher Street Pier. And uh, so a lot of the big buildings were built in a new technique that had just been developed. Hmm. And uh, part of the tobacco industry was also located in what would become Soho, wasn't it? Yes, Laurelard. Actually, Laurelard had been uh, at the edge of the collect pond. And when the collect pond gets filled in, his company, Laurelard Tobacco, takes a whole block of uh, West Broadway, actually, in Soho for both drying out the tobacco, selling tobacco. And it's an industry that not too many people would connect with New York, but there it was in Soho. Hmm. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Joyce Gold and the history of Soho. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. back to Rediscovering New York in our show today. Episode 25 is about Soho. Uh, Joyce, uh, tell us a little bit about you, the tours that you give. 
Well, I'm fascinated with how every neighborhood in the city differs from every other neighborhood. And of course, that's largely because they all have different histories. So I now specialize in over 40 different neighborhoods, and I have many tours of some of those neighborhoods. And it's kind of an endless passion to come up with interesting data to make a good story. My undergraduate degree is in English literature, and to me, what I tell on tours are uh, historically based stories. And I try to make them as interesting and factual as possible. Mm. And full disclosure, Joyce and I partner on a number of the tours that she gives with uh, a program that I have as part of my real estate business, also called, funnily enough, Rediscovering New York. Uh, What are some of the tours that you have coming up for the public uh, of the summer? Well, I'm doing a tour of the Bowery this uh, weekend. It's probably the most diverse street in the city. It's old line immigrant and especially at its northern end, very hip uh, new museums and other, other establishments. I have a Gilded Age tour, partly because I understand NBC, stu- NBC television is going to be a Julian Fellows written uh, fictitious 10-part show on the Gilded Age, post-Civil War New York. Not now. No, never mind. <laughs> uh, <coughs> <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, somebody just said, I don't want that tour. I want this other tour because the first one is just like now, but I won't go there. <laughs> I have a lot of different tours of Greenwich Village. Almost anything of interest you want to talk about, Greenwich Village has. And of course, Soho. I actually, in the Encyclopedia of New York, I wrote the entry on Soho and on, the, on Tribeca and a few other neighborhoods. And how can people find out about these tours? Well, my website is JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com, and that is also my Instagram handle. Ah. And you do have a great Instagram account. I love the photographs that you, that you post. I do all kinds of specific tours for private groups. For example, tomorrow I'm doing a four-hour tour for a couple from Toronto, and he was a policeman, so they want all kinds of police overtones, and she was a banker, so I'm trying to fit that in as well. And I love, one of my specialties is fitting the presentation to the particular needs of the of the tour taker, especially if it's a private tour. Uh, getting back to Soho, what are some of the more important architectural styles that we ha- that we have in the neighborhood? Well, certainly cast iron architecture. Arch- it's not a style. Usually, it's in the Italianate style. Cast iron is a material. And that was uh, come up with in the middle of the 19th century in New York, beginning in the 1850s, because it had a lot of advantages. And I'm fascinated by things that really fit the moment in time where they're used. Uh, cast iron architecture, is this a good time to talk about that? Absolutely, yes, yes. Uh, in 1850, 52% of New York was foreign born, half from Ireland, a quarter from Germany. And previously, substantial-looking retail establishments were made of brick or stone, but you needed to have very experienced, apprenticed people to build those buildings. But there was a lot of people coming into town that didn't have this kind of experience and would work a lot more cheaply. And so cast iron was an an, uh, industrial technique 
whereby they could melt iron. They had figured out a way to get out the impurities. They could uh, make iron molten so it became liquid and then make a mold of each part of the facade. So they would just pour it into place and prefabrication had come to the facades of buildings. This was at a time when Lord and Taylor, Tiffany, Howard, and others were in that stretch of Soho, and so they could look extremely prosperous in a very inexpensive way. Mm. I think retail likes to look prosperous because potential customers often like to shop where they think other people are shopping. So uh, actually, Soho had been the home and office of John Jacob Astor, the first millionaire in America. I think his office is now called Prada on, <laughs> on Broadway. It was that site, and he lived just a few doors to the north. Uh, he dies in 1848, the, the first millionaire America ever had. And uh, so his house is no longer there. But uh, the Howitt building is particularly interesting. That is a wonderful cast iron structure. Hmm. Actually, the Howitt building is architecturally significant because the architects built cast iron on two sides, not just on the front. Mm -hmm. Um, it also had a first, too. Wasn't the first passenger elevator in the house? Well, the first safety elevator, uh, Alicia Otis, in 1854, had shown in a very dramatic way how his new elevator design had a safety mechanism. And he did it in a way that was guaranteed to attract people's attention. It was part of America's first World's Fair, uh, the Crystal Palace Fair of 1853, right at 42nd Street. And he, he got himself into the elevator cab, allowed it to free fall, even in New York, this gets people's attention, and then the mechanism stopped. So Otis himself, and of course there's so many other Otis elevators since then, uh, personally uh, put in the, uh, the elevator at the Howitt Building, but it also is modeled at, or evokes the Library of San Savino in, uh, at St. Mark's Square in Venice, uh, the combination of the, art, of the arches and columns. All through the 19th century, builders in New York were evoking the structures of different countries. But if you really cared and if you really had enough money and you really wanted to impress, in this case, they would model it after a particular European structure. Ooh. And of course, the uh, first Otis elevator was not powered by electricity, but by steam. No, electricity comes to New York in the 1880s, and that was a major change as well. Hmm. For the uninitiated, Joyce, what would uh, the architecturally uninitiated, like me, well, not that architecturally uninitiated, but I am compared to experts, uh, what would be the differences between cast iron architecture and what a lot of people know of as flat iron? Uh, well, cast iron, as I say, comes out of a mold. It's prefab. Um, iron buildings otherwise have a different process and they, uh, they need a different kind of skill set. So there is quite a bit of difference. But architecture in Soho is particularly interesting because their styles represented from 1807 Georgian through Federal, through Greek Revival, through Italianate, through Second Empire, through Deco to today. It has most, one of the most diverse sets of architecture you can imagine. 
one of the most iconic structures in Soho, one of the most beautiful buildings, is the Puck Building. Yes, it is. When was the Puck Building built? Well, I believe it was in the 1880s, and I, uh, my tours of Soho often start at the Puck Building because it represents a number of the different changes of the neighborhood. You might say it began in a wholesale way because it was for about 30 years where they published a satiric newspaper called Puck. And of course, the allusion is to that figure uh, in uh, Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, whose most famous line is, what fools these mortals be. Um, I'm not going to talk about the present inhabitants <laughs> of it, of the building, but that could apply to some of them. Then it becomes uh, industrial. It, was, uh, it has very powerful and solid floors, and there were a lot of printing presses in the Puck, and they turned out uh, ads for ships and posters and all kinds of things. Uh, then it becomes an area of artists. A guy named Peter G., uh, who was an artist himself, renovates it with wonderful color scheme and quite beautiful. Was and this after Superior Inc. was located there? Uh, Superior Inc., yes, it was after that. Good. And... Uh, Let's see, it was in fiction, it was in Will and Grace, it was apparently used as Grace's uh, shop. I never saw Will and Grace, but that's what I hear. And uh, a branch of NYU, uh, the Wagner School for Public Affairs, is in it now, having replaced the Pratt Art Institute that moved into it. And much of it now is retail. REI, the wonderful sportswear company, is now in the Puck building. And they've done not only a great restoration of it, but they have some of the history of its time as the publishing center for the Puck magazine downstairs in that building. Mm. Well, let's fast forward to the Second World War and after that. Um, the textile industry had, uh, had uh, factories in Soho, but after the war... Uh, it was obvious that they could take advantage of cheaper labor in the South, and so you had this exodus, wholesale exodus of, of, of industry. Mm -hmm. um, how did Soho become a place where artists started to go and thrive? Well, one thing that happened in Soho was that there was what has been called a Barracuda city planner in New York by the name of Robert Moses. And Moses did a lot of things to and for the city, but he had, a, some say, a fatal flaw, and that is he thought the city was about the car, not about the people. So his plan was to rip up both sides of Broom Street and other parts of Soho for a cross Manhattan expressway. Uh, business people like to know where they're going to be in three years. This uh, added uncertainty, and that allowed artists to move into large spaces at a time that they were doing larger works of art. Hmm. And whatever ha became of the Lower Manhattan Expressway? <laughs> Gone the way of the dodo? That's about it. <laughs> thank goodness, thank goodness. Uh, well, more current, uh, more recently, uh, there's also been an uh, interesting new architecture uh, the first big new hotel in Soho was the Soho Grand. Yes, there was. That was there was a first hotel in many years, and they actually had me train, give nine tours to their staff. 
because the staff of the hotel had only worked in Midtown. They didn't know Soho at all. Nobody much knew Soho at that time. And so if people wanted to ask questions about the neighborhood, I told them some of the history uh, to just insert myself into this story. But it was built across the street from the landmark district. So they used the name Soho, they used vaulting and some of the Soho uh, architectural motifs, but they built across the street to not be limited by the landmark law, but to get the advantage of facing places that were protected. Oh, wow. All these innovations in figuring out how to take advantage of tastes and laws yeah. to uh, get the best things you can for your money in this town. Exactly. All this town and this city that we all call home. Well, Joyce, I'd love to talk to you more about Soho, but we are about at a time on this segment. My first guest has been Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is an amazing tour guide. I say that uh, subjectively, having been on a bunch <laughs> of her tours. Uh, you can find out about Joyce's tours at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. And aside from her public tours, Joyce also gives wonderful private tours, and I've taken advantage of those too. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. For being with us on Rediscovering New York. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to speak with our special guest who has a personal history in Soho, uh, also involving a really great museum. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m. we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka. Tom specializes in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. You can reach Tom and his staff at 212-495-0317. Rediscovering New York is about New York's neighborhoods and the myriad textures of this amazing city that we live in. Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But fear not, there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com and on podcast. 
You can like our show on Facebook. That's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And like Joyce, I also have an Instagram account. It's Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. And one of the note before we get to our second guest, when I am not hosting this show, indeed I am a real estate agent in New York City where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our second guest is a very special guest on Rediscovering New York. Uh, Charles Leslie, who's the co-founder and director emeritus of the Leslie Lohman Museum. Charles, who along with his partner of 48 years, Fritz Lohman, launched the first gay art space in New York in their Soho loft in 1969. Charles and Fritz were also major players in the establishment of Soho, first as an arts community and ultimately as a transcending commercial hub. In 1990, they co-founded the Leslie Lohman Gay Art Foundation, an organization which has grown exponentially ever since and which has recently been proclaimed a museum by the New York State Board of Regents. Full disclosure, I have been on the board of the museum. The product of Deadwood, South Dakota, that's where Charles is from and where he was born and raised, uh, the Pasadena Playhouse College of Theater Arts, the U.S. Occupation Army in Heidelberg, Germany, and the Sorbonne in Paris, Charles has spent great swatches of time in Europe, Asia, and Africa, and the couple's home in the Medina of Marrakesh in Morocco, where, full disclosure, I also have been. Uh, he wrote the first book in English on the great late 19th and early 20th century German photographer of the male nude, the Baron Wilhelm von Gluden, and has contributed numerous articles and monographs to various publications, including En Lo, The Old Gods, Restored Interpretations of Old Myths. Charles lives in New York City and in Marrakesh, Morocco. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to Rediscovering New York, Charles. Welcome. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, you're not originally from New York, but from a place that many of our listeners may have heard of for different reasons, but probably most have never been to. Almost no one's been there. Uh, it's, it's called Deadwood, South Dakota, although many people know of it now because of a television series and a film called Deadwood. There was a famous character in history who was from there as well. Oh, there was more than one famous <laughs> character from there. <laughs> Talking about Calamity Jane. And actually. Wild Bill Hickok. And uh, well, there are oh. several, several. Okay, I didn't know that Wild Bill was from there as well, but uh, it makes it even more uh, illustrious. Um, when did you decide that you didn't want to live and the rest of your life in Deadwood? I suppose I must have been 10 or 11. <laughs> But you stayed there for a couple of more years after that. Well, I, I stayed there until I finished high school. And the day after I graduated, I got on a bus to California with a one-way ticket and $36 in my pocket. And the rest is history. Where did you live in California? Uh, I lived in Los Angeles in, in, in Hollywood. But mm. my school was in Pasadena. You spent five years in Europe. Yeah. Um, what took you into the service? Uh, <laughs> the, draft draft. the draft. Okay. The draft. <laughs> you didn't have much choice. <laughs> Uh, but it was during the Korean War, and you managed to I be managed to be to sent to Europe, which was a blessing. Mm. And then with uh, the benefits of the GI Bill, you uh, the I, only person I know in the GI Bill who actually studied abroad. Well, I, I, by that time, I'd become enamored of Europe, and I'd traveled around some, and I didn't want to come home. So I, I took the option of, of entering the Sorbonne for two years, which was also a wonderful experience because my education sentimentale, my emotional education took place in Paris. When was the first time you went to Marrakesh? I, uh, you told me on a trip there. 1956. 
And that was after the revolution? It was during, Dur it was the first month after the peace had been signed bet between France and Morocco. Wow, wow. Um, you met Fritz, Fritz Lohmann, your partner uh, of 48 years in New York. Yeah. When did you and Fritz meet? Well, we met whatever, whatever 48 years, let's see, Fritz has been dead 12 years now, whatever 48 plus 12. So you met, you and Fritz met in the 50s? Yeah. Oh, okay, wow, wow. Late 50s. Late 50s. Where did you live in New York before you moved to Soho? When I came back from Europe, <coughs> I lived in a, in a walk-up in uh, what became known as Lois Sida in a railroad apartment with four other guys. Believe me, it was a mess. Like by <laughs> Avenue C? In that zone, yeah. zone, <coughs> yeah. Wow. And when did you move to Soho? Uh, I, ha I had started working. I became enamored of film editing. I, st I still don't understand why, but I knew some people working in experimental film, <coughs> and I began to perceive that half of filmmaking is in the editing room. And I plunged into it, and I wanted a studio, an editing studio of my own. So I was looking through the uh, ads for space in, in the Village Voice, and I found 1,800 square feet of space in an old Soho loft building, all of which were emptying out in those days because the old, the old manufacturers were moving away. Manhattan's not the place to try and run a factory of any kind. And um, I found 1,800, square for, for 1800 square feet for $3,500, so I bought it. So you were one of the artists who moved into Soho and well, took it? Well, very early on. We were, we were a small group of people associated with the arts, and we immediately formed a, a, an organization called the Soho Arts Foundation. Uh, not foundation, but organization. And I suppose we had to fight City Hall because there were a lot of people with their eye on, on Soho. Uh, Robert Moses, the man who, the famous destroyer of neighborhoods, wanted to destroy Soho so he could build a raceway between uh, East and West Manhattan for big trucks to run along. We had to go to court. It took us years to settle that. And then certain, certain developers wanted Soho too. Uh, we were constantly fighting someone for seven years before we finally got the zoning change. But we had great allies. For one thing, we had probably the last genuinely cultivated mayor this, country's ever, this town has ever had. His name was John Lindsay. And he understood what we were and what we were heading for. And then we found other great allies. We found uh, friends of cast iron architecture. And so we learned all about cast iron architecture and realized that this, our town has the greatest agglomeration of cast iron architecture anywhere in the world, and that it is an architectural treasure. They helped. We found a group called Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. They helped. But it was a struggle for seven years. We finally, we finally convinced everybody. And we began by asking for a change in the zoning at 12 square blocks. But with our great allies, we wound up with 48 square blocks. Wow. Yeah. You asked for 12 and got 48. Yeah. Well, wow. I was told by a member of, of the planning commission, this will never happen again. You'll never <laughs> and by coincidence, a get one of the guests on our first show about Stonewall last week, who actually was in the Stonewall the, on a date the night of the raids, was actually in the city planning department and also took part in the rezoning of Soho. That was Michael Levine. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you more about Soho, but first I want to talk about your work, your passion, yours and Fritz's passion in supporting and fostering the work of gay artists. When did you first become interested in art that spoke specifically to the lives and the life experiences of gay men? Well, I wouldn't say it's the lives and, uh, lives and experiences of gay men, but it was about seven when I discovered Greco-Roman sculpture in my father's Encyclopedia Botanica. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and the rest is, is history, as they say. Yeah. 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 Um, so when did you first start collecting? Uh, well, gear? when I was a soldier in Germany, I, I, I haunted little shops that had odd things in them. And I found one shop where they had some beautiful drawings, exquisitely uh, rendered. And I bought two of them. They were male nudes, beautiful, very classical, very traditional, very Greek in style. And uh, it's, it was the beginning of a small, a discreet collection, which improved over time. And then later, when I met Fritz, we discovered that each of us had such a discreet collection. And we joined forces, and for the rest of our lives, everywhere we went, we looked for work that spoke to us in that respect. And then it broadened itself uh, into work that involved social images, uh, political images, and so on. And, of course, the most substantial contribution that you and Fritz have made is not collecting it on your own, but uh, making it available to people and fostering communities of gay artists. When did, you, when did you decide that you wouldn't just collect it, that you would start sharing it? Well, we, <coughs> we, we realized our collection was worth looking at, and uh, we, there was no place to show it. I mean, the, the kind of art we were showing was usually, was usually abjured by mainstream organizations. And so we decided to, a la Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, we said, hey, let's put on a show. And we had a one weekend show in our loft saying you were invited to an image of, of uh, homoerotic art, a, 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 an exhibition of homoerotic art for three, three, three days, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we thought we'd get 60 or 70 people there over the weekend. And uh, before it was over, we had nearly 300 people coming in and out. So we thought, hmm, we'll do this again next year. And that, by coincidence, also was in the spring of Stonewall. It was in May of yeah, 1969. Yeah, we, we, we wound up at Stonewall that night. And didn't you f sell out every single piece of art? Every single piece, which set, we thought, hmm. Wow. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, what, about your experience at Stonewall that evening. Well, Fritz and I were in bed sleeping. Why? I don't know, because we were usually out at a disco at that time. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, we got a call from a friend in the village who said, You've got to come to Sheridan Square immediately. I said, I said, Craig, what are you talking about? It's two in the morning. And he said, you've got to come. I can't talk. And we heard all the screaming and yelling and carrying on. So we got up. You know, Soho and the village are contiguous. It only took us about 12 minutes to get up there. And when we got there, it was like you thought the whole world was rioting. The, the streets were filled with mobs of people screaming at the police and throwing coins and an occasional bottle. And um, one one group was trying to turn over a cop car. <laughs> Someone downtown got, the police by this time had invaded the bar and were all inside, but they were then kind of hostages inside. And yeah, they barricaded themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and finally, someone downtown with a cooler head realized that we can't let this turn into some kind of a police riot. So they sent reinforcements, not to attack the demonstrators, but to try to ease things and before very long, the police were backing off in a controlled manner, and everyone was calming down. A, a wonderful local politician named Bella Abzug came to... Uh, Everyone's smiling in the studio, listeners, <laughs> by the way, of those of us who knew and loved Bella. Uh, yeah, like, she came. She came. It's said, boys, calm down. This is going to change now. <laughs> she, <laughs> she got control of everything, and, and we did calm down. Mm. 
I have a funny story about Bella. I was in Washington in 1974. She had just been elected. I went down with the Model Congress uh, of my class, and I was asking a lot of questions. I can be, you know, I like to talk, yeah. right? And uh, she looked at me and she said, "I have two daughters." She said, "You remind me of one of them." <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well, uh, Bella was every gay man's pinup girl. <laughs> she was amazing. Yes. Did did Stonewall change anything for you and Fritz and how you either collected art or how the frequency which you it, put shows it, on? How did, it how did made it us realize there? that what we were doing had some value beyond our own pleasure. And because a lot of great art had been, as I said, excluded from mainstream, uh, mainstream venues, so we decided to change that. Mm. Did your shows become, well, actually, they had to become more frequent because you only had one show before, before Stonewall. How, yeah. how frequent did the, did the shows that you and Fritz then were putting on while, in your apartment? Then for a while, we put on uh, one a month. And then finally, we opened a small public space on the ground floor of uh, a building in Soho. And was that at 131 Prince or in Brooklyn? No, no that, was, uh, that was 51 uh, Worcester Street. Uh-huh. And... It became very heavily frequented, and everything was fine, and then suddenly uh, the plague hit, and everything fell apart. But by that time, we had developed contact with some excellent artists, and we had a list of serious collectors. So we kept handling sales between art artists and collectors. And then by, by, the, by the beginning of the, by the end of the 80s, things had calmed down, and we decided to reopen. And we did, and it was once again successful. But we opened at the, on the ba- on the advice of our accountant Philip Rubin to open as a nonprofit foundation, and because Fritz and I just carried it on our backs before that, the foundation, to our astonishment, ten years ago morphed into the Leslie Lohman Museum, uh, so proclaimed by the Regents of the State of New York. We didn't know it was going to happen, but they they came and looked at us and they said, "You're a qualified museum, so everything is now." totally changed. Well, Charles, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I do want to ask you a little bit more about your and Fritz's collecting of a big part of the collection during during the AIDS crisis and also the opening up of the museum and you being its first director. Yeah. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back. Okay. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com 
We're back to Rediscovering New York with my special guest, Charles Leslie, founder of the Leslie Loma Museum of LGBTQ Art and its first director. Charles, tell us a little bit about the museum and what's being exhibited right now for Stonewall. Uh, right now we have a wonderful show called Art After Stonewall. And it, rep it, it, it I mean, there was a kind of a blossoming of, of gay imagery of all kinds, social, political, romantic, erotic. And uh, we also have in the studio, by the way, a friend of mine who's the director of the museum, Jerry Capus. Jerry, yes, you joined us this evening. Yes, indeed. And he, uh, so that show is is a wonderful record of what happened after Stonewall, because uh, artists who who worked in definitively gay and lesbian context felt freer to do more work because they knew there was a place for it to be shown. And it has now morphed into a, a permanent museum. In the beginning, we started as a nonprofit foundation. And then, as I said before, the regents of the state of New York suddenly proclaimed us a museum because they, were, they, looked, they saw we have a program, we had lectures, we had film evenings, we have uh, poetry readings, you name it. And it is one of the fine cultural institutions in the city. The museum is on the corner of Worcester and Grand Street and is open. It's open. Um, get Jerry, when's it open? Wednesday through Sundays from noon to six. Noon to six. And Thursdays till late at night. Also, I, I just want to make one, I want to quote a quote. Uh, in, the news, in the New York Times, Holland Cotter, who is the preeminent doyen of art criticism in, in the country, described the museum as a pearl beyond price. Uh, How about that? <laughs> and you and your partner Fritz were the founders of that museum. I want to talk about um, a sad part of our history, um, uh, the AIDS crisis. Um, how did that impact how you and Fritz were collecting art, which also contributed to ultimately to, its, to the legacy of the museum and the collection that you have today? We closed our, our, our venue for a time because everyone stopped coming. Uh, but then we realized that there was a massive art that was going to be destroyed or lost or forgotten. And so we developed the mission of trying to save collections that were in danger of destruction. And we were fortunately able to do so in quite a few cases, not all, unfortunately. Well, one of the things on a personal note that impacted me about your and Fritz's work was that part of the, and this is some of the, that, that many, many LGBTQ Americans don't realize, is that there was so much art and so much culture that uh, gay people had and that in the uh, in the early 80s in the mid 80s their families were just throwing away and you and Fritz rescued it and saved it for our legacy for all time absolutely it was a hard hard call to try and surround things that were endangered we couldn't do it all but we fortunately did a, a fair amount when did the museum on Worcester Street first open I think about 10 years ago and you were its first director yeah, yeah, well, perforce. <laughs> we, we couldn't afford anyone else at the time. <laughs> now, thanks to people like Jerry, we're actually getting some real money from different sources. Uh, and the museum is in Soho, which brings us back to Soho. Rediscovering New York is about uh, New York's incredible neighborhoods, yeah. of which Soho is one of them. Um, Soho has changed so much since you and Fritz moved there. What would you say has been the ma have been the major changes, uh, even in the whole calling it the life cycle of Soho? It's almost impossible to describe because they've been so absolute and so total. I mean, when I first saw Soho, it was a it was a it, the streets were filled with in, industrial garbage. Uh, there was tr heavy trucking moving around. You couldn't. I mean, it was not a place to live. But of course, 
It was in the same period that artists were beginning to to paint huge canvases because they discovered that there was a market for them in corporate America. Uh, Certain corporations felt it was snazzy to have a a huge work by by Donald Judd or someone like that in their their offices. And they were hunting, and the artists were hunting for large spaces. The spaces were cheap because the old, mostly Jewish and Italian owners were trying to get out because their, their, their factory tenants had left. They were gone. You can't run factories in the middle of Manhattan. And the people they found to buy them were these people in this art movement. And artists actually bought the spaces and didn't just rent them? In the beginning, you could. As I said, I, uh, I, Fritz and I bought our space, 1,800 square feet, which is one of the smaller lofts, for $3,500. That was a win-win situation. What was it? Yes. Um, describe the current vibe of Soho. What do you like about the Soho of today? Well, there are things I like and things I don't like. I mean, I, I'm i fond of it because of its history and because of my own history in it. But uh, And no place is permanent. Everything, everything changes. Wait, changes. I, I, there was a wonderful uh, urbanologist from Princeton named Dr. Chester Rapkin who came to talk to us. And he sat in our loft encircled by guys I had beards and long hair I had a beard and long hair all the women were wearing t-shirts with no brassieres it was that kind of crowd and Dr. Heavens R- to Betsy <laughs> <laughs> and and Dr. Rapkin said I want you people to understand we were trying to get the, the zoning changed he said I he said we probably can achieve this but you people must understand something once you do this Soho will change radically and forever you will not be able to to, to control it it will be a, a a tiger by the tail. And we said, oh no, we're keep going to keep it just the same <laughs> just the same as it is now. <laughs> well, we know what happened. Well, it's human nature to want to hold on to the things that we love about the things that, yeah, we, that yeah. we enjoy. But, you know. He also, he also said something that I found very, very uh, impactful. He said, you must understand that whenever artists and or homosexuals, and sometimes the two are the same, move into a neighborhood gentrification will follow because sooner or later everybody wants to be there. Mm. Is there anything that you think that makes Soho unique now compared to other neighborhoods? I think much less than there used to be. It's still it's still a great place to live. It still has I tell you what it has. It has it still has the feeling of a neighborhood. We don't have any high buildings and we don't have uh, we don't have we have little store, you know, there's a deli on the next corner, things like that. So I like that little neighborhood feeling because when I first came back from Europe, I lived in the village where we had that feeling. And Soho has uh, kind of adopted that mantle. Hmm. Is there anything that you, as a, as, a, as a longtime resident of Soho, you've lived there most of your life now, Charles, is there anything <laughs> that you, you have? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm 86 now, 50 years I've lived uh, in Soho, yeah. yeah. And in the same place. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, is there anything that you struggle with now in Soho compared to having lived no, there? No, I past? must say everything is kind of everything is so settled down now, and everybody everybody has a vested interest in in maintaining the neighborhood. And the Soho is clean for one thing, which it certainly wasn't in the beginning. Hmm. And I don't know; it's become a, it's become a comfortable neighborhood to to live in. And of course, it has a very uh, substantial edge of bourgeois quality about it now. How do you see the future of the neighborhood of Soho going? If you, you know, if you, if you have a Soho crystal ball, what, how do you see it moving? If you, have, have you thought about that? How you Damned see if I know. I can't figure out what's going to happen. I, it, I think it will remain an interesting mercantile area because people love to come to Soho, Soho to shop. 
And uh, also full disclosure, Charles is a landlord of commercial space in Soho. He and Fritz bought property decades and decades ago. Um, as a landlord, uh, would you have any specific advice for someone to looking up someone looking to open up a retail business in Soho? Yeah, think twice before you do it because retail is dying everywhere. Okay. Well, on that note. Uh, uh, my second guest has been, well, actually it's true sadly, a lot of places in, in, in New York are, uh, seems that we have few, less and less retail, and that certainly has been the case in Soho. Um, my second guest has been Charles Leslie, founder of the Leslie Lohman Museum. Charles, it's been a great pleasure to have you. Thank, Thank you so you, much Jeff. for uh, being on the show. Thanks, Jeff. If you have comments or questions about Rediscovering New York, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is JeffGoodmanNYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And don't forget, when I am not hosting this show, I am a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646 306-4761, or of course, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Storier, sorry. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner, coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc, and at 9 p.m. beyond potential living life your way with my friend Noreen Sumter. And tune in for our show next week, our last on our specials honoring the anniversary of Stonewall, when we take a look at the events from 50 years ago to the experience of three very special women who were active in the early days of the modern LGBT rights movement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, 
Broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 